My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Don Cleveland, a professor of cellular and molecular medicine at UC San Diego. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Cleveland. Pleasure to be here. So could you talk a little bit about how you first became interested in science growing up and when you knew you wanted to pursue a career in science? For me, it just always seemed to be decided from the earliest of my memories. Discovering how the world really worked was something that I just wanted to do. My parents didn't really overtly encourage this, but my father was the first educated person in his family and had become a physicist. And uh, I just thought saw myself following in that tradition. So in graduate school, you were a graduate student in Mark Kirshner's lab at Princeton. And uh, in 1977, you, while in his lab, you developed a method for mapping peptides using enzymatic proteolysis followed by gel electrophoresis. And according to Google Scholar, this paper is actually now your most cited paper. It's been cited over 5,000 times. Could you maybe frame for the non-molecular neuroscientists out there what the problem this method is trying to address? So the real issue back in those... <laughs> mid to late 70s and then following onward for a decade was if you how can you tell if two polypeptides isolated in different pro approaches if they're actually similar or not and uh, for today's student you have to think back there were no western blots no immunoblots there were so few techniques there was no mass spectrometry huh. so what i tried to do was to purify the first microtubule associated protein uh, the one uh, one that would become famous for its linkage to cognitive disease. We named the protein tau, and I purified it on the basis of its ability to induce the assembly and stabilization of tubulin into microtubules. But the purest preparations that I could make by using classical uh, fractionation had uh, actually four polypeptides, two sets of doublets, all of which were about 60 kilodaltons in apparent molecular weight on SDS gels. And there was a long discussion of whether I would ever graduate since I couldn't actually purify the protein. And what Kirshner and I then thought of was, could we develop an approach to test whether each of these polypeptide species was really quite highly related one to the other? And the magic of the method was to discover that if you add uh, a denaturing agent like SDS, to a protease, you do, of course, start to denature the protease. You also, if you add it to the substrate, unfold the substrate, thereby making the substrate a more accessible substrate. Mm -hmm. But the real magic was that you make the protease much less happy, and there, therefore it only cleaves its most favored sites. What gotcha. that does then is it produces peptides from your target substrate protein, which are a re remarkably stable partial digest products whose sizes are large enough to be uh, distinguished on conventional SDS polyacrylamide gels. Hmm. And then what we recognized was that actually you can use the, the SDS gel as the place to do your proteolysis. Isolate your initial polypeptide band in the gel slice, in the, the SDS of course, place that gel slice on top of a new gel on the stacking gel of a new gel and overlay it with the protease using the stacking gel to now concentrate the substrate and the protease and getting therefore getting digestion taking place in the stacking gel. Hmm. 
then the, the polypeptide products of your substrate then gets resolved on the major resolving gel. And so with such an approach, what I could do was to isolate each of my tau, putative tau polypeptides as individual gel slices and then determine that actually they all gave rise to almost identical peptide fingerprints. From that, we concluded that actually they were very similar uh, polypeptide species that differed in ways that we didn't know, but that altogether they were tau. Ultimately, what I did with that approach was to discover that each of the tau polypeptides produced proteolytic fragments that were nearly identical. Uh, they had to therefore be highly rated, related species. In fact, I sort of overstated earlier to say that I had purified it to four polypeptides. Actually, there were three sets of doublets, one minor doublet. And those six polypeptides ultimately were re recognized to be all six alternatively spliced forms of a single tau gene. Hmm. That was something that we didn't suggest at the time, primarily, and this is for your, for today's students. Uh, we didn't suggest it because splicing had not yet been discovered. Hmm. So, so you just thought that this was a kind of characteristic way in which it was digested as opposed to being... No, we thought that 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 there were some kinds of post-translational modifications mm. of an initial tau polypeptide which we uh, which we had not yet identified but that gave it differing uh slightly differing electrophoretic mobilities on a conventional SCS gel. Mm. And we were wrong in that. They are actually truly different six different tau isoforms. But of course, we didn't understand that there were spliced isoforms right, right. since spliced was not discovered until that same year. Hmm. So did you have any idea at the time that the that this uh, methods paper would be as influential as it was? I mean, as you described it, it was something that was kind of crucial to getting your project done. But obviously, it's it has applicability well beyond that. We did not think that at the outset. But as soon as we saw what it could do, then we did realize that it would have broad applicability. Although I don't think we recognized how broad that would actually be. Hmm. Uh, indeed, we sent the paper to JBC, the Journal of Biological Chemistry, in 1976, and it came back editorially rejected. And when Kirshner called the editor to, to ask what the heck was happening, the editor said, well, you're really going to write a good paper where you measure KMs of proteolysis, etc." And Kirshner said, well, there's four of us on the paper. We don't really get along. This is it. This is the only paper. <laughs> and we went and we went from editorially rejected to uh, accepted. <laughs> so that was my first lesson as well in the it's in how to get things published. And the primary lesson is argue with the editor. <laughs> so what, wait, was that true? You guys didn't get along or, or was it? <laughs> it was it was true. Yes. There were two young PIs and two graduate students. And it was a, like many collaborative ventures, it, it had its uh, tense moments. <laughs> uh, so as you mentioned, while in the Kirshner lab, you've iso you isolated tau, which obviously has gone on to, to been, been shown to play a, a role in Alzheimer's disease and many other so-called tauopathies. Could you explain in a little more detail how tau operates under a normal, normal circumstances uh, in the cell, again, for the neuroscientists who aren't uh, cell biologists? Yeah, so tau is a, as I showed actually in that, in the early work, I showed that tau, uh, the 60 kilodalton, uh, protein does not have a structure like many conventional proteins. It's actually largely unstructured and on that basis is, uh, remarkably 
stable to heating. So it's one of the heat-stable proteins. It's a very flexible, highly charged, basically charged protein. And what it does is to wrap around the helical pitch of a, an assembled microtubule, thereby stabilizing that microtubule. And so its flexibility and structure is really part of its function as a microtubule stabilizing component. How does that normal function get dysregulated in, in Alzheimer's or, or other diseases? Yeah, so this, the major surprise was that um, that normally uh, flexible conformer can adopt a stable conformer in, in which it can then template further molecules of tau to join it to, to generate this a prion-like property that we now think underlies the slow cell-to-cell -cell spread of these self-templating tau conformers. So that was, that was a completely unexpected discovery, about as unexpected as the original discovery that molecules like the prion protein can adopt multiple conformations, one of which self-templates. This is now, of course, of high interest, as you indicated, because misfolded tau is found in most instances of Alzheimer's disease, other dementias, and today's thinking is that it is the basis for chronic brain injury, so prominent now in professional sports, especially professional football. So do we understand what are some of the, the things that cause tau to, to take on this self-templating configuration? I think that the answer, in short, is no. It's a crucial question, but uh, I think no. So when you started your own lab, you began uh, studying the mechanism underlying uh, human motor neuron disease, such as ALS. Um, and in 1994, your lab published a paper in which you hypothesized that motor neuron diseases are caused by an aberrant accumulation of a protein called neurofilament, which is a component of the cytoskeleton in axons. While this accumulation had been observed in humans before, your lab was actually the first to show a direct causal link by mutating a gene, encoding a small neurofilament subunit in mice, and showing that it resulted in massive degeneration of spinal motor neurons. Could you talk a little bit about how these accumulations occur and why this leads to disease? We patterned our original thinking at, uh, after the discovery that mutations in the intermediate filament proteins of the skin, the keratins, which uh, Elaine Fuchs and I originally cloned when we were postdocs. The mutations in keratins are were proven by Fuchs to be the cause of many skin uh, blistering diseases. Uh, the family of intermediate filament proteins includes the neurofilaments as the major components in large motor and sensory neurons. And so we thought to test with similar mutations known to cause skin blistering disease, would they be the basis for disease in the nervous system? And we demonstrated in mice, absolutely they are. The aberrant filament subunits misassemble, assemble aberrant filaments. And as all neuroscientists know, these axonal freeways are used for trafficking components made in the uh, cell, neuronal cell body to the nerve terminus and back again. It's the freeway model of what goes wrong. All you need is a minor accident on that freeway, and all six of those lanes can slow down to a crawl. And that is exactly what happens if you have aberrant filaments assembled. The model is its absolutely clear that if you do have mutated neurofilaments, at least in some ways, you get this slowed axonal transport that can be causative of fatal motor neuron disease. Having recognized that uh, to be true in mice, it was one of the great disappointments of my career, uh, however, that our subsequent search for 
causative mutations in neurofilaments in human disease found only very rare uh, neurofilament sequence variants associated with ALS or uh, a more mild motor neuron disease called Charcot-Marie Tooth disease. Hmm. They really should have been more prominent causes of uh, human motor neuron disease, but there you have it. They weren't. So one of the hypotheses that could explain that fact is the so-called, you know, rare variant hypothesis in which maybe your basic hypothesis is correct that there's a traffic jam, but there are many, many ways to cause a traffic jam. I think you're absolutely correct that uh, the rare neurofilament mutations that are probably causative of motor neuron disease really do provoke disease in the manner that we've just discussed. And that's one way to produce age-dependent degeneration uh, and then death of uh, motor neurons. But there are many other ways to get there as well, some of which impact uh, axonal transport directly and others that act at different uh, sites within the, the motor neuron or, more importantly, within other cellular neighbors of the motor neurons. Hmm. I, I think we'll talk more about that, that possibility in just a little bit. But before we move on to that, as you mentioned that the neurofilament is a prominent in large axons, whether it's motor neurons or uh, sensory neurons, but you, the cell death is much more pronounced in motor neurons than sensory neurons. Do we understand why this is, why the motor neurons seem to be more strongly affected by defects in neurofilament? Almost every investigator has, a, has an hypothesis about that. But I think the truth is why motor neurons are more vulnerable to altered uh, neurofilament assembly or content, I do not think that is satisfactorily answered. What are maybe one or two hypotheses that you favor? The arguments are that it's a combination of events, that motor neurons have very high firing rates, and that they are, the motor neurons and sensory neurons, are the largest cells in the body. Uh, a, motor, a typical motor neuron uh, in the lower, a lower motor neuron from the spinal cord down to the foot in the sciatic nerve, doing calculations that even biologists can do. <laughs> the you very quickly uh, learned that the large motor neurons are about 5,000 times the volume of a typical cell. And so they are, though the, it's the single cell body is under a huge biosynthetic load. It has a large firing rate. And therefore, it, for many reasons, it's a highly stressed neuron, arguably more stressed than its sensory partners. Uh, the axons are even bigger, even more neurofilament rich for motor neurons than they are for sensory neurons. And so you could argue that that tips the balance a bit toward sensitivity of the motors versus the sensories. And even lastly, the truth is, it's harder to detect loss of sensory neurons than it is loss of motors. So that even in, in, in bona fide ALS, there is loss of sensory neurons, but the primary phenotype and the primary complaint by the patients is the inability to move the muscle, not the loss of sensation. Yeah, it's easier to imagine various adaptations for the for the sensory input going down, whereas getting to your muscle to move is given the way that the nervous system's wired up, it's harder to fix that. Yep. So another gene linked to the pathogenesis of ALS encodes an enzyme called, called SOD1. Uh, and in 2006, your lab published a paper where you looked at knockouts of SOD1 in motor neurons and or in the microglia. And this gets to your allusion to, to the cells that surround the neurons. And you found that when you mutated SOD1 in 
motor neurons, you saw an effect on the uh, onset of the disease and the early part of disease projection, whereas mutations in microglia contributed to the later part of disease progression. What did you think was going to happen when you analyzed these mutants before you started the study? We had recognized that the gene products whose mutations were known to be causative of ALS, actually, and the other major human neurodegenerative diseases, those gene products are not, in no case are those gene products expressed uniquely within a, a neuronal type whose degeneration or death is responsible for the primary phenotype. In the case of superoxide dismutase, or SOD1, that this is a gene that's absolutely ubiquitously expressed. So we wondered whether the action of the mutant proteins encoded by such a gene whether the, those proteins acted directly within motor neurons or whether they acted within the neighboring cells. So the truth is we thought it likely that non-motor neurons would contribute to one or more parts of disease course from synthesis in cells other than motor neurons. So we designed the test, starting with testing the innate immune cells of the spinal cord, the microglia, and we chose those primarily because we, we had mice with a selectively deletable mutant SOD1 gene, and we obtained a mouse which expressed a recombinase, the Cree recombinase, which could selectively excise the mutant gene from the microglia. We chose it not because we were really focused on microglia, but because we technically could do that experiment. And subsequently, we have tested five other cell types and found that three of them contribute in very significant ways, each of them actually contributing to uh, mutant SOD1-mediated fatal motor neuron disease in mice, contributing as importantly as synthesis within the primary motor neurons. Indeed, the overall question started from the great cell biologists of the early 19th century, Rudolf Virchow and Claude Bernard, who established what now seems so obvious, that the basic unit of life, the cell, functions semi-autonomously within the tissues of an organism. And from that time onward, the major human neurodegenerative diseases have uh, widely been thought to be cell autonomous. That is, to arise from damage, genetic or otherwise, within the type of neurons whose degeneration or death causes the symptoms. But as I indicated earlier, the genes whose mutations are actually causative of those diseases has made it very clear that all of those genes are broadly expressed. So disease is not being as reductive as we would like it to be. Yes. And what we ultimately demonstrated was that these three glial cell types, the innate immune cells, microglia, astrocytes, and at least the precursor cells of oligodendrocytes, they synthesize mutant SOD1 that drives rapid disease onset and rapid disease progression. And this insight that the disease process is non-cell autonomous was initially received well with hostility, but it's really quite sensible. The quality of life of motor neurons is strongly influenced by the health of their intimate partners, the glia. And so the lesson is almost certainly to be true for all of the major human neurodegenerative diseases. It seems to me that there, we're going to shift from a view of a, a cell autonomous basis of disease to a non-cell autonomous basis of disease. And today's students, and certainly tomorrow's students, won't understand why we ever even proposed that they would be cell autonomous. 
So finally, could you just give us a brief preview of what you plan to talk to us about when you come to Stanford? There has been a great excitement in the ALS world with the, the discovery now of all of the major causes of a disease. There are four most prominent genetic causes, three of which affect RNA and RNA maturation. And this has refocused the field onto how errors in RNA binding proteins and RNA processing events may underlie age-dependent selective killing of motor neurons. Additionally, the most recent major causes of ALS have demonstrated a, a completely unexpected linkage between what seem to be two highly disparate diseases, ALS, the motor neuron disease, and frontal temporal dementia, the second most frequent cognitive disorder. We now know that mutations in individual genes can give rise either to ALS or to frontal temporal dementia, or for the most unfortunate patients, both. We now recognize that individual mutations can give rise to very phenotypically divergent diseases, but who must have some underlying similarity in the molecular errors. And so I'm going to talk about what we know about the two of those RNA binding proteins, named TDP43 or FUS, F-U-S, and what we've decoded about the similarities in action of those proteins, both on, in the normal setting and in the pathogenic setting. And then I'm going to follow that with a discussion of how we've learned that the disease process in ALS is non-cell autonomous with mutations causing one or more toxicities, molecular toxicities, but those molecular toxicities differ in different cell types. And finally, I'm going to close with the lessons that we've learned from mechanism of underlying disease to attempt to develop a pair of gene silencing approaches that can lower the synthesis of the uh, mutant gene product within uh, multiple cell types within the nervous system, and which we hope to, to demonstrate can be broadly applicable approaches that may be feasible for application in man. Interesting. We'll look forward to it. But I look forward to visiting. Yeah. So in closing, we like to ask a series of uh, shorter answer questions. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student, and I mean you specifically, what advice would you give yourself? When I was a graduate student, there was a young faculty member who was widely thought to be the best and the brightest. His name was Bruce Alberts. He became widely known, famous textbook, president of the National Academy of Sciences. And Alberts asked questions at every seminar. And the questions seemed so simple. And there were a trio of students, uh, myself, Elaine Fuchs, now uh, Hughes Professor at uh, Rockefeller, and Art Levinson, the former CEO of Genentech. And the three of us could not figure out how the best and the brightest, Bruce Alberts, always seemed to, seemed to know so little. <laughs> so one of the lessons I learned, I learned it slowly, was that the reason you ask those simple questions is because if you'd actually answered that, you would have really solved a problem. So I think. The answer was to think more clearly or as er early as possible on what would really be an important question in biology. So I also happen to be a graduate student at Princeton, and uh, I know that the food options in graduate school around Princeton are actually not so great. So what uh, food uh, establishment or food dish helped you survive graduate school in the, in the sort of food desert that is Princeton, New Jersey? <laughs> well, it was a food desert. Uh, there was one place on Prospect Street 
Princeton's major street uh, had the pizza place, and uh, that was sort of the survival survival <laughs> mode. Yeah, yeah. So what do you most enjoy about being at UC San Diego? So UC San Diego is one of the youngest of uh, the UC campuses. We're rapidly growing. We're we're changing. I enjoy watching an institution continue to mature into one of the nation's leading institutions. I'm glad to be a part of that, and I'm uh, I'm really pleased to see that even in a time where state funding it has become more and more modest, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit of UC uh, San Diego has allowed us to uh, continue to grow, attract good people, and create an environment for scientific discovery, which I think does rival the topmost tier places. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today, Professor Cleveland. Yep, my pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Patalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our new website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org.